Well, good evening, everybody. Uh, my name is Stuart Corbridge. I'm the head of the Development Studies Institute here at the LSE. If you're not from the LSE, you're very welcome here this evening. Uh, this talk and the responses from uh, Adam and Teddy Brett will be available as a podcast, we hope, later on. Um, we are tonight competing with a uh, talk on the global credit crisis over in the old theatre, so it's very nice to see so many people here this evening. We've just been in what's called the green room, which some of the students set up for a cup of tea beforehand, and there were no fair trade products in there, as it turned out, uh, for our guests. But nonetheless, uh, you will know, because you're here tonight, that there is a huge amount of interest in fair trade products and the fair trade movement. So what we have planned for this evening is a talk first by Harriet Lamb, who is going to talk for about 30 minutes on the topic of fighting the banana wars. Uh, Harriet is a very well-known figure in the fair trade movement. She has been the executive director of the Fair Trade Foundation since 2001. And when she took over, I think I'm right in saying, uh, the total value of fair trade products traded in the UK was probably under 50 million pounds a year, whereas at the end of last year, it was comfortably over 500 million pounds. So she has been at the heart of a very rapid increase in products traded under the fair trade label. Uh, Harriet was awarded a CBE in the New Year's Honours List in 2006. And if I just read one more thing from my notes, in 2007, she was voted the second most influential eco-foodie in the UK <laughs> after Hugh Fernley Whittenstall. So Harriet will speak first for about 30 minutes. And then we're very fortunate tonight to have, sitting to my right here, Adam Brett, who is a fair trade entrepreneur and the founder and director of Tropical Whole Foods. So Adam will be giving a first-hand account of what it is to, like to be at the heart of the business. And then you might have guessed from the names that the third person who will speak, who many of you will know, is Dr. Teddy Brett from the Development Studies Institute, who happens also to be Adam's father. And Teddy's going to offer some critical comments on what Harriet has to say <laughs> and what Adam has to say. I'm now going to remove myself to the far part of the room and invite Harriet to come and speak to us. Well, good evening, everyone. And that's a, a fairly daunting prospect to speak before having uh, Teddy Brett's critical comments. And I don't know about uh, the rest of you, but, you know, I'm really missing the former president of the United States um, because he was always so good for a laugh uh, as the leader of the free world, and in particular when he made one comment uh, when he actually complained that too many imports into this country come from abroad. And on the basis of that in-depth understanding of international trade, then declared that he would fight aggressively for free trade, of course, unless, of course, you happen to be a U.S. Uh, steel worker or a U.S. cotton farmer, in which case, clearly, protectionism was critical. And much as I miss uh, the humour he could inject, it was nonetheless a breath of fresh air, of course, when the new president, Obama, spoke right there in his inaugural address put his finger right on the problem of greed and irresponsibility in the global economy and said quite clearly uh, that you cannot have prosperity for some unless you have prosperity 
for all and spoke about the case and the need to intervene in the economy. And I guess that's a little bit of what fair trade has been trying to do, to create living alternative that shows you can intervene in the economy in order to make it work better. And to make it work better for people right across the world. And obviously, these are tough times for all of us here. I'm sure it's difficult for all of you on student grants. Uh, and it's difficult for businesses throughout the UK economy. But if these are tough times for us, they're actually desperate times for the farmers and workers across the developing world. And just to give you one example, I came today from a board meeting where uh, the president of the Latin American Producer Network within Fairtrade was speaking about the utter impossibility for the farmers' organisations to get credit, credit at all at the moment and the extraordinary burden that places on them when they simply can't get money to run their businesses or to buy coffee from the farmers. Or earlier last year, I was in Kenya, where I met a worker who told me he had actually been a farmer, but he'd given up farming because uh, the rains kept on failing. And he said, I had to find a job where I knew I would get a steady income and I didn't have to rely on the rains. And so he'd taken a job uh, working on a farm, but he explained how actually there the price of food had risen by 100%. And when you're poor, you spend up to 80% of your income on food. And when the price of a bag of maize had doubled, that actually meant that workers were skipping meals. They actually could no longer afford to have two meals a day. So for them, tightening your belt is not a metaphor, it's a reality. And that is part of a long-term trend. So if you look at what's happened to commodity prices in real terms over the past 40 years, and these are United Nations statistics, which, which track what's happened to those prices in real terms since 1970. If you look at what's happened in jute, rubber, cocoa, coffee, sugar, bananas, tea, cotton, I could go on and on and on all night. And behind each of those graphs lie the shattered reality for often hundreds of thousands, sometimes millions, of farmers and workers who've seen their incomes similarly decline and take a hit. And in case you're wondering, that long-term trend has not been reversed in recent years. And although the, some commodities have seen prices rise somewhat last year, nonetheless, the long-term trend in real terms remains the same. So you look here at cotton brought right up to date to the end of 2007, and indeed it continued in 2008 as well. That is what fair trade seeks to challenge and to change by putting social and environmental conditions right at the heart of trade and saying, can we create a system of trade that actually puts the farmers and workers first and seeks to put some justice back in to international trade. And uh, the way in which that has sought to have an effect over the past, it's been about 15 years since we had fair trade labelled products carrying the fair trade mark. So we're really just a teenager now. And we can see over those first 15 years what have been the impacts. And there have been something like 80 different academic studies of the impacts of fair trade. And if you try to look at them all and pull out what have been the impacts, here come some of the themes that come through. And first is, how does the impact of fair trade work? 
And first of all, absolutely central to that is the fact that there are standards for trade. There are any number of schemes that actually are putting the owners back onto the producers without giving them the extra resources to meet those standards. What's different about fair trade is it's about changing the terms of trade. And so there are standards which all companies that are buying fair trade must meet. And just to give one example from 2005, it was estimated that some 80 million euros went back to producers through the minimum price and premium that then was able to benefit their communities more widely. Uh, so to give you the example of cotton that we looked at earlier, if you look at what's happened in cotton in Mali, for example, 2005 to 6, the price of conventional cotton fell by a quarter. By contrast, and you can see that took the price down to 24 cents for a kilo. By contrast, the fair trade minimum price was 36 cents with an additional premium. And so whatever happens in fair trade, the farmers will always get more than the market. Because if the market goes up, then the fair trade price goes up with it. And if the market, as it very often does, go back down to hell, as one farmer said to me, the market goes to hell and back, at that point, fair trade provides the safety net. And so you can see here the light blue line is the fair trade minimum price. It provides a floor beneath which you, can't, you have to pay that minimum price. But if the market price goes higher, and indeed prices are relatively high at the minute, you can see 2000, January 2009, or December 2009, prices were relatively high. At that point, traders must pay the market price if it's higher, but with the premium on top, so that the farmers are getting a safety net, but also they're always getting a higher price. And you can see the same thing in cocoa. Again, we've got peaks when it goes up, fair trade goes with it, but always getting that additional premium on top. Academic studies have also looked at the other impacts of fair trade, that it's not just about the minimum price and premium, it's essentially also about having access to markets, being able to sell your products on international markets, and getting the kind of organisational support that, for example, that I'm sure Adam will be talking about afterwards, the kind of support that dedicated fair trade companies in particular provide to the farmers' organisations. And at the heart of this, absolutely critical to the impact of fair trade, has been the organisation of farmers. Within fair trade, in order for a smallholder group to enter into fair trade, it has to be organised into some form of cooperative or association. And the reason that we've put that at the heart of the fair trade system is that it is only through organisation that we will be able to change the fact that farmers are, tend to be isolated individuals at the end of very long supply chains. And too often those supply chains are shaped like a funnel. You can have, for example, I think it is 45 million coffee producers and they are just four companies by 60% of their product. And so you have a funnel with millions of smallholders overwhelmingly, but not only, selling to just a very few corporations. And so in that situation, the only way you're going to change the position of the smallholders is through organisation. And if they are organised, they are then in a position to begin to change their position in the supply chain. And that can be mediated through different ways. And here are just a couple of examples. You see here a, a great guy called Gerardo who comes from Costa Rica, uh, from an organisation called Cucafe. And he's actually a really fantastic guy who, when he was growing up, uh, coffee prices collapsed. And he was forced to give up coffee farming. And he spent eight days crossing the Texan desert to get into the US as an illegal immigrant, going without food and very little water for eight days in order to try to get in and work illegally. And all that time, he was thinking, how can I make sure that my kids 
don't have to do this? How can I make sure that when I go back to Costa Rica, I can help build a better future for my community so that they can stay on their land and earn a living from their land? And so he then went back to, when he could, he went back to Costa Rica and helped form a cooperative of coffee farmers. And that, as he says here, the fair trade price allows us to survive as coffee farmers. It covers our cost of production. It lets us send our kids to school to buy clothes and keep a roof over our heads. So it's enabling them to do actually the things that we all take for granted every day. But it's more than that. It's also about changing the position of those farmers in the supply chain. For example, uh, Cafe now not only can sell their coffee as fair trade, they have their own brand of coffee. They've now moved further up the supply chain, so first they started washing their, their coffee, then roasting it, then, as I say, having their own brand that they sell within Costa Rica, but also that they sell internationally as fair trade and then they've expanded their business into diversifying and they also now grow macadamia nuts and then because these are incredibly innovative entrepreneurs and just given that chance the additional resources the access to knowledge and market information they're able to turn it to maximum impact so now for example they've been experimenting with using the macadamia nuts uh, to, to power the roasters for the coffee so reducing the environmental impact so they're not having to cut down trees to fire the factories or to planting more trees and growing their coffee under shade any number of innovative solutions that they're coming up with once they're given that opportunity and that was very neatly encapsulated in fact by another a banana farmer from Copa Trapasaur who, who told me before I was someone that took a box and loaded it onto a train. That was my only responsibility. I was just a farmer who was an intermediary. In this new system, I've become an international businessman. And we can see also the impact for women in decision-making. And here's some examples from Mali, from a producer group in Mali who sell uh, cotton. And she spoke, they, she spoke about the importance that women now join in the decision-making. And they were involved in the harvest and the decisions about production and conservation. We were part of the decision to build the new school. And uh, as I'll show you later, this particular group decided that they wanted to use the extra money they got through fair trade to build a new school. And it was very much women who were fighting for that uh, as what they wanted their children to have the chance to have an education. And so you can see that through fair trade, not only is it bringing that additional price, but that then enables the smallholders to organise and to change their position and indeed to build democracy at a local level. And that then is strengthening the organisations and it's also then enabling them, the farmers, to undertake community development and to take the actions that will enable them in their communities to meet some of the Millennium Development Goals. And so, just to give you one example, well, you can see here a bus stop <laughs> that they built in the Windward Islands, because what, how it works is with the, minimum, with the premium, the farmers' organisations can decide how they want to invest that. It's completely up to them, obviously, uh, and very often they will decide to invest it in building their business, the examples like building up the macadamia business, but also in tackling the, the issues that face their community. And so here, these uh, kids in particular had wanted to have a bus shelter because they had to wait and kept getting wet in the tropical storms on their way to school. And here you can see an example from Mali. Mali is an extremely poor country, partly because it's very dependent on cotton exports, 
which uh, are completely undercut by US dumping subsidized cotton on world markets, which has been shown by World Bank studies to have a direct link to the depressing of cotton prices for countries like Mali. And indeed, they were among the countries that were most angry about the collapse of the Doha development round of trade talks because it's iniquities in the cotton trade that they had one of the issues that they had sought to address. And so you have a situation where the farmers have little money and the government have very little money. And as a result, only one in ten children are able to go to school. And they're typically walking something like ten miles to get to school. And I know the trouble I have to get my kids to walk ten minutes to school. So I think the fact that kids are ready to walk ten miles also shows the hunger for education that people have. And so the very first thing they did when they got their premium in this village was they decided to build two, two classrooms school. But within minutes, it was completely overflowing with kids. Uh, and they had to do shifts, and then they still had too many kids because everybody was coming from the surrounding area. So the next year, when they sold their uh, cotton as fair trade, they built two more classrooms. But by now, and this is back to the question about empowerment, that very nebulous term, but actually you can pin it down, what it meant was, having built two cl four classrooms of their own now, they felt in a position to go to the government and demand that they too built four, and now you can see this community actually have a really rather fantastic school which can accommodate all the local kids in the area and can begin to give them a chance to build the better future that those children want. And it is through initiatives like this that fair trade is helping the farmers to build an architecture of hope. It's helping them feel they don't have to always be the invisible people at the end of long supply chains that there is a possibility for them to build a different way of trading and a different way of their community developing going forward. And it is, above all else, built on the pride of the farmers, that it's the farmers who've done this. It's not the government, it's not aid agencies, it's not other companies, it's the farmers too often seen as uh, the uh, yesterday's job, the one you don't want to have, the one you want to leave as fast as you can. And this is helping give pride back to the farmers because they're the ones who are being able to achieve many of these uh, initiatives and indeed we're working now with over 600 producer groups representing some 7 million farmers and their workers across the developing world. But I think if you want to look at the impact of fair trade you have to look not only at those examples but also what has been the impact here and how has it been possible for us to begin to grow this alternative way of doing trade and begin to push in and succeed within the mainstream and absolutely critical to that has been that at the same time as the farmers have been organised, so too have the public been organised here in the UK and indeed across Europe. And that is the other absolutely key strand in helping to change the way trade is done. And so you can see here that now something like uh, 7 out of 10 people in this country recognise the fair trade mark. And that's a phenomenal achievement, above all else, because it's been done on the most tiny of budgets. If you look actually at, and I'm sure many of you have um, studied this, that if you look at uh, rankings of GDP uh, across the world of, of countries, actually very, very high up, you soon run into the multinational corporations who have GDPs far bigger than many, many countries across Africa. And indeed, the marketing budget alone of Coca-Cola puts them in at, I think, number 24 on the rankings worldwide. And yet against that, fair trade has, with no budget at all, managed to get recognition of the public at sitting at 70%, with deep trust among the public as well. And increasingly, people are saying that they see fair trade as one of the most effective ways to help tackle poverty, overtaking aid and giving to charity. 
And what's been at the heart of that, as I said, is organisation. And it's been a grassroots social movement that is one of the most, we believe, exciting social phenomena of recent times. Because people have just grabbed this idea and run with it. And if you talk to government or if you talk to business, I think they overwhelmingly have a very cynical view of the public and believe that they will always look for the cheapest products or only be looking for their narrow self-interest. And I think the public response to fair trade shows the basic decency of people, that if they're given a chance, they were willing to play their part in helping to tackle poverty. And so people throughout the country have organised, and there are now over 400 fair trade towns, which means a local uh, town or village or city indeed uh, seeks to uh, make sure that the, the local council passes a resolution to fair, serve fair trade tea and coffee, that there are targets for awareness among the public locally as well as distribution locally. And that's been key to making that connection between difficult international issues of trade and my local town and my local uh, community where I live. There are also uh, 80 fair trade universities, and I know there has been a group here uh, at the LSE, and I don't know if anyone here tonight has been at all involved, but there has been an active group in the past and uh, indeed, people on the planet have run an active campaign to see how can we make sure that more and more universities both offer fair trade products consistently and also stay with it, even if students come and go, that actually it stays within the procurement departments. There are over 5,000 fair trade faith groups in 2,500 schools. I mean, it's really a movement that's got this enormous energy behind it among the public right across the country who are prepared to do all kinds of weird and wonderful things to raise the message of fair trade up and down the country. And I always think when we um, try to explain to the producers the work we've had to do to raise awareness of fair trade, I think they have a very odd uh, perception of the British public now as people who like dressing up as bananas and prancing around on the high street in freezing cold weathers. But it's working, and we're coming up now to our biggest annual uh, two-week promotion, which is Fair Trade Fortnight. And um, I've brought some leaflets here. And if you'd like to join in, we both have an event on the South Bank uh, this Sunday. We are very welcome to come and join us. And we're also seeking to break uh, the world record for the most number of people simultaneously eating fair trade bananas, eating bananas <laughs> within 24 hours. And I have leaflets if you want to join. We already have 96,000 people registered to eat a fair trade banana between the 6th of March and the 7th of March including people right across Britain, uh, including, I should say, Bolton Wanderers' entire football stadium, as well as farmers in Ghana and in uh, the Windward Islands, to name just a few. So I hope you'll join on with, in with that. And what that is doing is helping drive sales of fair trade. So we saw last year a 70% increase, and although we don't think it'll be as high this year, it will nonetheless buck the trend of the recession and will indeed, we expect, to hold steady, and we'll be announcing that uh, on Thursday, in fact. And what's exciting is not only are sales increasing, but actually the public want more. And what they're saying, when we say to people, do you know about fair trade? Yes. Do you think it's a good idea? Yes. Are you buying the products? No. <laughs> and so then we say, why? And then they say, because we can't find them. They're simply not available enough. It's the top reason that people give. And then they also say, not only can I not find them in my local supermarket, but I can't find them in the cafes or restaurants or at my college or university. And uh, increasingly also, of course, people want their favourite brands to offer fair trade. It may be that fair trade is available in the supermarket, but actually they're wedded to one particular brand, and what they really want is that company also to be engaging with fair trade. And that 
Consumer interest is, I think, very exciting as uh, an indication of the possibilities we all have to create change. I think very often we can all feel very powerless in the face of these huge multinational companies or the huge forces around the Doha development round or international negotiations. And what fair trade shows is the possibility that we all have to drive change. Uh, there are now, for example, over some 5,000 different products carrying the fair trade mark, and they range from uh, dedicated companies like Adams that he's going to uh, speak about in a moment through also to mainstream companies that are increasingly offering fair trade. And so, for example, uh, this time a year ago, Tate and Lyle, one of the iconic British brands, announced that they were switching all their retail sugar to fair trade. And what's that? That will immediately benefit 6,000 sugar farmers in Belize and ensure some premium in the first year of £2 million. And so what I think fair trade is seeking to do is to show companies that you can succeed commercially while still doing right by the farmers and workers in your supply chain. And it is, if you like, creating the environment and giving companies permission to care. You will know that companies, particularly those listed on the stock market, have a legal obligation to think first and foremost about their returns to their shareholders. And what Fairtrade seeks to do is to make it possible for them both to maintain successful businesses and to do the right thing. And it does that by creating the consumer demand. You can argue about whether it is the job of business to tackle poverty. You and I might agree that it is. Many in business would disagree. What nobody in business would disagree with is that it's the job of business to meet consumer demand. Consumer is clearly demanding fair trade, and therefore it becomes in their company's commercial interests to increasingly offer it. And here is just one example where uh, Justin King, the chief executive of Sainsbury's, he went to the Windward Islands and he said, I know that fair trade works. I've seen the positive impact that it can have. And as a result of that, they switched all their bananas to fair trade, and indeed following that, have switched all their own labelled tea and sugar and coffee to fair trade. And as he says, we're not doing this for altruistic reasons, but we, because we know our customers support the objectives of fair trade, helping guarantee farmers in the developing world a fair and stable price. And so this is beginning to open up the possibilities to take this little fledgling teenager really to scale. We are a global movement. The fair trade movement spans 80 countries worldwide, countries where you can buy fair trade and countries where the producers are, are part of the fair trade movement too. But we are well aware that it is nowhere near enough, that there are still today in 2009 some 2 billion people worldwide who earn less than $2 a day. And too many of those 2 billion people are growing products that you and I buy and enjoy every day. And that's why we're determined over the coming years through a process of constant experimentation and change to really take fair trade forward and take it to scale so that the farmers who are queuing up to join fair trade can come in and so that we can deepen its impact. And that's why we've sought, we have set out our strategy in which we're seeking to tip the balance of power in trade. And here's, just to end on a, a final story, uh, these are some farmers, actually, that I went to visit in Hyderabad in India. Indeed, uh, the cotton that they sell has ended up in the T-shirt I'm modelling tonight. <laughs> and uh, they had just sold their first lot of cotton as fair trade to a 100% fair trade company, Hug, based uh, in South London. 
And they'd just bought, this was the first thing they'd bought with their premium, and I was there when they opened it. And as you can see, it is a set of shiny new digital scales. And so I asked them, hmm, why did you decide to spend your first premium on scales? And they explained that they're very, they're tiny, they've got tiny little slithers of land. It's impossible for them to ever get credits from the banks as with such small, small holders. Uh, and they need, all farmers nearly need credit in order to buy inputs such as seeds or fertilizer or to employ workers at harvest time. And particularly if you have an annually harvest crop, you're very low on cash at the very time you need it. They couldn't get money from the banks, and so they were forced to go to the moneylender. And the local moneylender not only charged them 30% interest in just a couple of months, but he insisted they sold their cotton to him, and they knew that he was cheating them on the scales. And so for those farmers, when they got organized, and they formed a cooperative, and they've now got a bank, bank loan, because they now have a cooperative and they have forward orders from a fair trade company that said they're going to purchase it and they could take that to the bank and get a loan. But also, this was a symbol that they, the farmers, were now in control of their product, that they knew what they'd grown, they knew how much it weighed, they knew what it was worth, and they were going to sell it for a higher price. And with the additional income that they were going to receive, they were going to begin to transform the situation for themselves and for their community. And that, we believe, is a symbol of how we want to tip those scales, the scales of justice, if you like, which we believe are beginning to get, we're getting near the tipping point where we can really take fair trade to scale if, and only if, each and every one of us and all of us can help participate in really making fair trade uh, everyday reality. And I think it was for us very well summed up by one of the coffee farmers, the whole philosophy of fair trade. It was one of the Mexican coffee farmers called Victor Peregrovas, who um, explained, when he went round the mountains explaining fair trade to the coffee farmers, he used an ancient Mayan Indian saying, which is, many little raindrops falling in the mountains make the mighty rivers flow. So in the same way, it's millions and millions of tiny little actions by each and every one of us as consumers, as people who organize for fair trade, as companies, as retailers, and as producers can begin to add up to a force that can begin to make a difference to the lives of farmers here and now, today, tomorrow, but can also help to change the climate within which business is operating and also within which the government is operating, and can hopefully give them mandate to make the big, bold moves that they also need to take now more than ever in world trade talks in order finally to hopefully deliver a fairer deal for producers in developing countries. Thank you very much. Brilliant. That was fantastic. That was a great overview of the fair trade movement. I especially like the phrase, the architecture of hope. Um, we are going to leave about 30 minutes for questions afterwards, and I know many people want to ask you questions, Harriet, but we've also now got two discussants. Uh, we're going to start with Adam Brett, who I said briefly before is, the, amongst other things, founder and director of Tropical Whole Foods, and is himself, therefore, a fair trade entrepreneur. And then, I think, without any further ado, I'll hand over to... Teddy Brett to make some, uh, some more critical comments as well, and then we'll come back and open it up to the audience. So over to you, Adam. Thank you. Good evening, everybody. Um, I always like when I start, maybe I'll just speak into the microphone, um, I always like when I start to ask a few questions, because I think it always wakes people up a bit. 
So, um, number one, how many people here are studying BAs? BSc. Very few. MAs? Other t forms of degree at the LSE, PhDs, whatever? A few. Non-LSE people here? Way, hey! Well, that's great. Brilliant. Okay. And then, out of all of you, how many of you buy fair trade products regularly, more than once a week, or whenever you do a big shop? Whoa! Very good. Brilliant. Okay. Um, slightly more left-field question then, because I thought there were going to be more LSE students here. In terms of the kind of eco economists among you, how many of you really believe the market always delivers the right solution? It's not a trick question. Okay, good. Unanimous. Excellent. How many of you are from a less developed, less economically developed country or have had experience of living in one of those countries for some time? I think that's a majority. Is that a majority? It's close to it. Maybe at least 40%. Great. How many of you have got real experience in a business, in a sort of entrepreneurial context of a business, actually driving something forward, doing it? A few. Okay. And how many of you work in what I would call an NGO? In other words, uh, some other kind of organization that's trying to change things or... Okay. Good number of you there as well. Okay. Excellent. So... This is a really interesting and powerful group of people, I think, which is a good thing. Um, and I think it's almost the most interesting thing about fair trade is the types of minds that seem to be being attracted to it. Um, when I heard, you know, the big names that were going to be in the other room, wherever it is, over there or over there somewhere, I thought, oh, God, you know, we'll have 25 people in the audience tonight. <laughs> But the resilience of fair trade, I don't actually think there's an empty seat or there's maybe one or two uh, in this room. And I think that is absolutely fantastic. As Harriet pointed out, Fair Trade Foundation has got virtually no advertising budget. By the st if you compare their advertising budget to any one of the top thousand companies in the UK, it would be at some tiny percentage. And so I think it's very, very interesting that there's a groundswell of popular and public opinion amongst thinkers and ordinary people that there is something wrong and there is something that we can do about it. And I think whilst fair trade is in no way the whole solution, I think it's a really critical component in the solution to the types of problems that we're actually seeing around us right now in the way in which the economy is being mismanaged um, and that mismanagement that, the, the mismanagement that has resulted in the credit crunch. I think the forms of economic organisation that have led to the credit crunch are very oppositional to the forms that are beginning to grow up within the fair trade movement and in other alternative trade movements. And I think this is a grain which we have really got to try and see sprout into something even bigger. Um, and I hope the reason that I've dedicated myself to this uh, as, a, you know, as a life goal to build fair trade around the world is that I actually think that it has the capability to be really transformative of the whole way in which we organise our lives. Okay, so a tiny little bit of history. Um, I was born in Uganda and then I um, studied here in the UK and then a little while after graduating, in 1988, I returned to Uganda, um, which was just at that time emerging from a very long period of civil war and decimation um, by multiple corrupt political regimes. At that time, 
um, the term fair trade probably didn't really exist. Um, there was something called Max Havlar in Europe, which was a, a kind of nascent form of fair trade, which was developing. The, the uh, Tradecraft, which is a UK-based fair trade pioneering business, exist, existed. Um, but the Fair Trade Foundation certainly didn't. And in all honesty, I went out to Uganda with the simple goal of trying to create something transformative for that country. And I'm not even sure, even despite what I said at the very beginning of, of this evening's um, st uh, talk, I'm not even sure whether I necessarily made the right choice. Because now going back to Uganda, I see transformations, powerful and fantastic transformations happening there with technologies like mobile phones and other kinds of telecommunications, which I think are also extraordinarily liberating. And in 1988, I could quite easily have fallen on that side of, of the fence and said, oh, forget about these bananas and pineapples and mangoes and so on. Telecoms are just as important. Digital schooling, digital information for farmers and so on. And I think overriding everything that I hope all of you will take from tonight's um, talk... I believe all of you that are students now have a real opportunity at graduation to make the kind of decision that I made. I had no special facilities. I had no funds. I had very, very little to back me up. I just went out into the field and started and carried on. And 20 years later, I have achieved a reasonable amount, perhaps not as much as I could have done if I'd gone into mobile phones at the right time and right place, but... I'm somewhere that I'm really, really proud to be. Now, the typical experience that an African farmer has um, was the thing that really drove me to start my business and take it forwards. In the time that I did the first two, three, four years of work with my farmers, I saw an extraordinary process of constant churning in what they did in their lives, which was incredibly disruptive to any chance that they might have of building a successful livelihood. I would go to a farmer and say, grow me some um, fresh bananas, put them in this machine that I've produced, and they'll dry down into a dried product, which I can put in this bag and sell. And they'd say, how much can you pay me? And I'd tell them how much I could pay them, and they'd go, oh, okay, yeah, that sounds like it would make me a little bit of money. It wouldn't make me a huge amount of money, but it would be steady. Okay, I'll do a bit of that. And they'd start to do a bit of that. And then somebody would come along and promise them, would give them some cowpea seeds and promise them that they were going to pay them $5 a kilo for the cowpeas when they were harvested. Or they'd bring along little baby suckling pigs and tell them that they'd come back in three months and pay them for the fully grown suckling pigs. They'd bring them, um, what's it called? Mulberry seedlings to grow and silkworm eggs to cultivate on the mulberry seeds and then promise that they would pay them money for the resulting silk cocoons. I mean, these, these things actually happened. I visited farmers whilst we were setting the business up in Uganda, and I saw people being sold these ideas by briefcase businessmen who travelled around. And every single time, the poor little farmer would get ripped off one way or another. The number of schemes and tricks that there were... The person would come back when the cowpeas were, were um, well-developed and they would just say, all right, yeah, I need them tomorrow. You know, I'll come back tomorrow. Would come back, pick them up. Oh, sorry, I don't have any cash on me. I'll pay you next week. 
off, wouldn't pay, would never be seen again. Okay? The suckling pigs would pay half what he'd agreed to pay. The silk cocoons wouldn't even come back because between the time that the mulberry, seen, the, the mulberry trees got um, planted and the time that they grew to a point where they could be harvested, the silk price has gone down to 10% of it, what, what it was before. So the kinds of experience that Harriet talked about in detail with commodity prices crashing, yeah, those are real issues, but they're almost a small component of the overall turmoil that the small farmer lives with, with the lack of information that they have. We've got climate change, failure of rains. We've got social upheavals and wars. We've got the impact of diseases like HIV and AIDS. We've got extraordinarily poor governance. When you add all of those things together, you create a situation where, of course, they're all poor. How could they be anything else? Okay? So all I'm trying to do is to give them a regular source of income, something that they can rely on. And with the 200-plus small businesses that I trade from in Uganda, they've had that, and they've had it consistently over a 15-year-plus period. So right now, my small business has a turnover of about £3 million, just under 30 staff in the UK, and uh, in the current year, we've sent back about £1.2 million in payment for materials from our suppliers in Uganda, Burkina Faso, Pakistan, and other countries. Now, our way of operating is in each country to set up a partner business that can act as a supply chain link between ourselves and the farmer. Okay? Now, in this, we are in a small way. Well, in the past, we were quite largely in conflict with the Fair Trade Foundation. Now we're much less in conflict with them because they used to have an overriding insistence on a cooperative ownership model, and that doesn't always work in every social context. So what we now have is situations where our farmers are organised and they may have a shareholding or an ownership or a membership of this business that works with them, but we actually believe that there is a need for some separation between the purchasing and controlling body in country and the individual farmer because there's a need for some, um, what's the word, rigour and um, control, if you like. Um, we do that in every single country and we, produce, and we provide dedicated support to that partner and then down from that partner to the individual farmer groups. So farmers are given the technologies that they need to grow and process the crops. They are given dedicated business support to make sure that what they're growing actually works for them. As often as not, if a farmer comes to us and says, I want to dry bananas for you, we'll say, sorry, you're not going to make any money at doing this. Because the part of the country that you come from is too dry, too wet, too cold, whatever it is. Okay? So we will actually make sure before we start with a farmer that the work that they're going to invest in is going to, be, is going to work for them and is going to be profitable for them. We also work with the farmers to ensure that they have technical systems that can respond to diseases and we try as far as we can to help them when things like El Nino come along and um, wash away their crops, we provide what support we can in those kinds of situations. So what we do is not that dissimilar to what some very good 
um, non-fair trade businesses do in Europe. Um, but what we're trying to do is to do it as a norm for all farmers, regardless of the power that they have over us. And I think that's one of the key things with fair trade, is a recognition that the people who, you're, who are supplying you actually have a place themselves, and if you are actually gouging value from them, you're in a sense mining their goodwill and their capabilities. And that is something that capitalism does very, very well indeed. With four billion people in the world who are willing to farm, the few hundred million people who are rich can buy from a few hundred million farmers for a while, drive down the prices until those people are utterly, utterly impoverished, then they can move on and pick the next 400 million people to start buying from. And that's the reality of what happens in a hell of a lot of farming relationships. Countries start to produce a product and they actually undersell it. The example of Vietnam with coffee is an obvious one because they want to establish themselves on the market. Vanilla, the price has been crashed by, by entrance to the market. And I think this overcompensation, this quality of overcompensation that the market has is really dangerous and that's one of the key things that fair trade allows us to avoid. Now, I'm waffling and my time's up, so I want to sum up. So one of the first critiques we often get is that fair trade is the way it should be and that, uh, sorry, free trade is the way it should be and fair trade is never going to work because it's not free trade. My response to that would be, give me free trade. Okay, I'd be not unhappy with, fair tra with free trade, okay? Because there's nothing like free trade out there in the, in the real world, okay? The levels of subsidies that um, developing world farmers receive, the levels of power that key players in the market have because of their monopolistic control over supply chains mean that we have nothing like a kind of classic Adam Smithian um, uh, uh, relationship between the different players in the market. Also, beyond that, free trade actually is not good enough, as we have seen through the events of the credit crunch. We don't need to use price as a sole mechanism for moderating demand in the modern digital world. I sell a significant portion of my products to Tesco's. Tesco's give me 15-minutely sales data. They tell me the number of bags that are passed over every till in every one of their 1,400 stores so that I can drill down and say how many people in Daventry, South London, etc., have bought my product in that time period. Okay? Based on that, based on forward predictions, based on good analysis... I can decide how much I'm going to need to buy. And I no longer need to use the very, very heavy stick of price. I can tell my producers, next year, production is going to rise by 5%. So bring a small number of new farmers on board. I can say, next year, production is going to nearly double. You're going to have to bring a lot of farmers on board. And I can do that reasonably, reliably. Now, that's something that just was not possible 10 years ago, probably, let alone 50 or 100 years ago. But with that knowledge, the, pre the, the premier position that, that neoclassical economics gives to price becomes far, far less important. 
we can actually look forwards and we can discuss and relate to every member of the supply chain and we can negotiate with them over the quantities that we need to meet our needs. We don't just have to say to them, oh God, we're going to need a bit less, let's halve the price. That'll stop them from producing any more. We can say to them, we only need a, we need a, bit, a bit less next year, so we're going to lower the amount that we buy, but we're happy to carry on paying you the same amount. Okay? That is a really, really big transformation in the way that uh, economic systems work, and it is one of the main things that makes fair trade a much more real possibility. Finally, I'd like to return to the point of the overriding success of fair trade, which I believe shows a real hunger amongst the whole of the European and developed world community for a different form of relationship between ourselves as consumers and all the producers who are out there. Okay, I think if I was standing here and this was a three-quarters empty hall and the figures on Harriet's graph showed that you know, sales were trundling along, on the bottom of the, along the bottom of the page, then the people in the kind of neoconservative camp would have a very big argument to hold up against me. But the simple fact is, on like-for-like like sales, I have shafted them this year. Okay? So, put that in your pipe and smoke it. Okay. Thanks very much. Thanks. Thanks, Adam. That was really interesting. I'm going to turn over very quickly then to Teddy Brett. Since many people are here from outside of the LSE, Teddy Brett teaches at the LSE is a very major figure, I should say, as well, in development studies, but no more than 10 minutes, Teddy. <laughs> yeah, okay, and as I say, follow that if you can. Um, the last time I gave a public lecture in this space, or rather was involved in a public debate in this space, was when I stood up uh, to pro provide the major, major critique of the Jubilee 2000 campaign uh, when I stood up and said we've got to be very careful about just simply assuming that forgiving debts is the best way of solving third world problems. And I'm now standing up to present you with a critique of fair trade. So uh, either I'm an extreme right winger or maybe I'm a, or maybe I'm a masochist, I'm not quite sure which. But let me start by saying that I am actually a shareholder in Adam's business. Um, <laughs> Although Adam says, uh, I, I will remind him that the business started on the basis of my handing over to him my first consultancy money that I ever earned from the World Bank in 1990. Uh, and I am much happier being somebody involved in a fair trade business than I would be if I were involved in a non-fair trade business. Uh, I'm not into gouging, uh, the, gouging the faces of the poor. And I'm very, I'm, I'm very happy and indeed very proud that Adams may, may managed to both operate a fair trade business and develop a turnover of three million, although I also have to say that his profit rates are very, very low uh, as a result of that. And one of the reasons, I suspect, why he doesn't have a six million dollar turnover is because he's been running a business in which his profit rate has been too low and he hasn't been able to expand quickly enough as a result of that. And all that I want to do now is in 10 minutes to simply raise a few question marks about the concept of ethical business. 
Uh, and I just raise it because one point that uh, was made earlier struck me. Sainsbury's has chosen to simply transfer all of its banana supplies to ethical suppliers. That surely must be a very ethical thing. What actually struck me was that there seemed, must now be a hell of a lot of banana suppliers out there that previously were making their living by selling non-ethically traded fed, uh, bananas to Sainsbury's who are now bankrupt and who are now out of work. Uh, we also know about the great success of the ethical fair trade movement in, in getting child labor out of, out of sweatshops in India, young girls who are no longer sewing footballs and carpets in those shops. Um, the question that I ask is, what are they selling now? My suspicion mm. is that a lot of them are selling their bodies on the street. So the first point that we've got to make about fair trade is that fair trade is only going to produce ethical results if it doesn't impose conditions on people out there that make it impossible for them to actually deliver and supply goods and services effectively. Uh, there's a seminal article for those of you who are willing to think about these things seriously by a man called Paul Krugman, which you'll find on the web somewhere. Paul Krugman is one of the great, I think, in fact, he won the Nobel Prize last year, which might say something about the economics profession, and it's called <laughs> In Defense of Low Wages. And what he says is, well, okay, we all know that low wages are a bad idea. We all would like everybody to have high wages. But the point about a market system, and whether we like it or not, that's where we live. And let's not forget that socialism died 20 years ago. We're living in a post-socialist society, which means we're living in a market society. We've got to recognize that for better or worse, market constraints are the basis on which people operate. That means that if you live in a market society, you have to respect market disciplines and what market discipline does is not necessarily minimize prices, and Adam's quite right about that. It minimizes costs. It forces people to produce at minimum levels of costs in relation to particular patterns of demand and supply chains. And of course, if you try to come in with an ethical proposition, which is what we are going to do is pay people what they, what they deserve rather than what they've earned, to pay them what they need rather than what they've earned, and you put that price too high, you're going to price them out of the market. And that is the critical central issue that you have to address. Um, markets do not produce ethical outcomes. Markets produce practical outcomes. What they do is put things on the shelves where people are able to afford to buy them. And if you put those prices up, by creating levels of um, costs through imposing ethical standards on people out there that push those prices up, you're going to do either of two things. The one thing you could potentially do is your consumers are going to simply have to sacrifice more to get the same thing, which is fine if we're talking about rich consumers in the first world, but not so fine if we're talking about poor consumers in other contexts. Uh, and the second thing you're going to do is potentially price people out of the market. Does that mean that I am opposed to the fair trade movement and fair trade businesses and don't think that it should operate? The answer is no. 
I've had these conversations with Adam in a slightly more private space, usually over, over a dinner table, either sitting in the south of France or in Hearn Hill. And I have, I have accepted that basic argument which he presented to you, and his argument is actually that if you wish to run the kind of business that he's running in these contexts, in the long run, you will do better by by behaving ethically rather than unethically. To take the story back even further, which have been the most successful businesses in 19th century Europe and 19th century North America? They were businesses run by Quakers. Why were these Quaker businesses, Kellogg's Cornflakes, Cadbury's, Barclays, I think possibly Lloyd's Bank, were set up by Quakers? Why were they more successful than other businesses? Because they ran on ethical principles. People who went to a Quaker shop knew that they would not get cheated. They knew that they would not get short measure. They knew that the, the shopkeeper would meet his, meet his demands. Adam rightly behaves like that towards his consumers, and the result of that is that he's in business and expanding 15 years on, and all those crooks and gouges and so on are actually out of business. Because ethical business does work better than non-ethical businesses, provided that it operates within the constraints that are set by the market in the last analysis. And so what we can see is that what we're really needing to press for here, and I understand and I had this conversation with Adam uh, about the fair trade organization, is that there is a recognition that the standards that have to be set for ethical business cannot simply be standards set by what we would like people out there to have. Because what we would like people out there to have is significantly higher than what we can possibly make it possible for them to have. That these standards have to be set within a range of limits set by what the market ultimately determines. And within those limits, what the ethical trade movement does is, if it can, as it is massively successfully doing, persuade large numbers of people in these contexts to be willing to pay higher prices, to be willing to accept that because they make it clear that Adam's business is actually operating ethically as it claims, and he's not just lying about it. And that, of course, is what the role of, of, a, of a fair trade uh, organization that, that validates uh, fair trade, then potentially he can actually get some real brownie points for behaving in that kind of way, and we can then create these kinds of win-win situations and that is why I'm very grateful to the Fair Trade Organization for making it possible for Adam's business to succeed more effectively than it would have done otherwise. But I also have to say that this business has succeeded partly because he may have put fair trade on his packets, but they weren't really fair trade accredited. He succeeded because running an ethical business is actually a better way of running a business than running an unethical business. So that's the starting point. The role of the fair trade movement is, in a sense, to create the, the framework in which those kinds of business practices can be generalized, in which people who run those kinds of business practices can be rewarded, mm. and in which that whole thing can be expanded very significantly. 
and I you know, have the greatest admiration for all the things that, that we've been seeing here. But I would simply, in conclusion, say, be careful not to assume that you should, in a sense, generalize this to everything. I am totally opposed, for example, to campaigns outside supermarkets saying, we must stop buying product X because the workers who produce product X are getting wages that are too low. So if you successfully stand up and stop people buying Adidas products because Adidas doesn't pay its workers a high enough wage in Vietnam or wherever, the question that you have to ask yourself, are the workers in Vietnam whose products you are now boycotting better off as a result of your demonstration, the success of your demonstration or not? And that does seem to me that we have to think very hard uh, about the caveats you have to enter into because we are living in a market-driven world where, as Adam, I think, also rightly said, if we actually had a bit more market, there'd actually be a bit more scope for third-world producers because their sugar producers, cotton producers, would actually be getting much better prices, not because of fair trade interventions, but simply because overpriced American cotton would be driven off the market all those American workers who produce <laughs> cotton in the United States would be out of business, but a lot of much poorer people in the third world countries would be in business. There aren't what economists call Pareto optimal solutions here. There are costs on both sides. We've got to recognize that and go with that. Thanks very much. Teddy. <coughs> I'm guessing that we're going to have a large number of people that want to ask questions and we're going to have a spirited debate. I know that Harriet probably wants to come back to Teddy and maybe Adam does too, but if it's okay with you guys, can we open it up to the audience first? What I'd like to suggest is if you have to go now, just please leave as quietly and quickly as you can. Um, we've got at least 20 minutes left. I'm going to take questions in threes, but could you please keep your questions short and sharp uh, and then I'll hand them over to the relevant people. Gentlemen there. It's a supply and demand skills question, please.
mic and kick off, and then Teddy and Adam have something to add. You can also you come back at these guys if you want to. Can you hear me? Yep. Is that okay? Can you hear me at the top? Okay. Uh, so the first question, for those who maybe didn't hear it, was about, I think if I, I'm right, it was about moving into other sectors beyond food and drink, and where in particular perhaps um, people can have more skills and indeed add more value to the commodity, which is very often what is the objective of farmers, organisations, and indeed whole governments in the developing world, is how can they add more value so they're not just exporting primary commodities. And um, absolutely, we are seeking to see how can we take the principles of fair trade and expand them to other sectors. And so we're looking now at the minute, how can we work, for example, with the Marine Stewardship Council on developing fair trade for artisanal fishermen or, and also aquaculture. We're working with the Forest Stewardship Council about how can you develop the principles of fair trade within the, the forest sector. And we're looking in particular about how can we move, for example, with cotton products. We, at the moment, only deliver the benefits of fair trade back to the cotton farmers, but obviously there are many, many manufacturing stages within fair trade, and we want to see how can we add value within those different stages of spinning the weaving, the dyeing, and right through to the manufacture. And likewise, how can we move to more processed food initially, like canned pineapples, for example, but it could over time be all kinds of other more skilled products. So I think it's a matter of time, of seeing how can we extend the principles sector by sector, looking how can we make sure we maximize the leverage to bring about change within that sector. Uh, so it's a gradual process. So we don't at all think that fair trade will forever be about primary food products. It is about, though, a process of change and managing that. Um, I think uh, to come to the uh, second point about prices, and I think that also touched a little bit on what Teddy was saying about how um, can you ma manage this thing of, of paying people what they need, and in, in our system we define it as the cost of sustainable production with a premium to invest in the future, which is about making sure people have enough today that covers the cost of what it costs to grow the product, which you would have thought was a non-negotiable, but also with a premium. So it's about change. It's about development. It's not about standing still. It's about change. How can you marry that with uh, what's happening in the market, and will the consumers be ready to pay more? And I think uh, for us, we are, are constantly looking at how we're setting prices. We do it through a mixture of doing research in the cost of sustainable production within the countries within which the producers of that primary commodity operate, and then looking at what the market will bear, to come to your point. There is no point in having an incredibly high-priced product that nobody will then buy. So it is a question of developing and refining constantly the skill with which we can do that, because we wouldn't say we've at all necessarily got it right yet. It's extremely difficult. We have, yes, indeed, we have put the price down sometimes. For example, we felt we had the price of bananas from Ecuador too high. It was making it impossible for them to compete. Uh, they couldn't sell enough fair trade bananas, so we brought the price of fair trade bananas from Ecuador down. As a consequence, they sold much more and actually gained more benefits in the end. So it's finding a balance. Um, and where I would disagree is with Teddy saying, uh, you have to operate within the constraints of the market. What the market ultimately determines is the price. And I don't think the market is some hidden force that does things. We create the market. We create all kinds of markets. We create the conditions for markets to operate. We have in this country a minimum wage legislation. The minimum wage legislation puts a floor, and it says people must be paid this, 
can be paid more, but you can't be paid less than that. And that determines then the constraint of the market on wages in this country. We have health and safety legislation. We have 101 ways in which we can shape the market. And I think what's interesting is how can we do that at a global level within primary commodities? We found one technique that operates in two ways. One, by creating consumer demand, you can pass that price increase onto the consumer. And I think what's exciting about fair trade is the consumers have shown they do value the conditions of the people who grew the products. That's part of the values. It's one of the attributes of the product, if you like, just as important as quality. Increasingly, people are saying they're ready to pay more for a product if they know the farmers and workers have had a better deal. And I think, therefore, that is working within the market, if you like, but it's slightly changing the rules of the market. It's standing them on its head, and it's taking the market as its word, and it's saying if consumers care about these issues, then they, and they're ready to pay for more for it, then let's deliver it to them. The other way is to ask companies to put some of their margin in. And that is obviously a much trickier one to pull off in the long term. But what we've seen among some of the leaders, among the dedicated fair trade companies like Divine or Cafe Direct, but also big companies now like Sainsbury's, putting some of their profit margin in to, make, to covering that difference between the fair trade price and the conventional market price. Most of that's confidential, but Sainsbury's have publicly declared, and therefore I can share with you, that in the first year that they switched all their bananas to fair trade, it cost them £4 million in loss margin. That's how much extra they were giving back to the farmers. And they decided that was a price worth paying because it enhanced their overall company image. It would encourage people to come and shop with them. And so it is about finding, and I think ourselves defining those market disciplines. I don't think they're givens. I think they're within our grasp as consumers, as businesses, and indeed ultimately as governments to set and change that. I think to come to the final point about multinational companies, uh, which is indeed one of the most contentious bits of our fair trade movement, which is a movement, and we all these issues are very, very difficult, and they require constant debate and change as we try to create this new way of doing trade. And when the fair trade mark was established, it was established as a product mark. The idea was you already had dedicated fair trade companies like Tradecalf, like Cafe Direct, indeed, like Tropical Whole Foods, who were doing fair trade very successfully. But what we all knew we wanted to do was to take it much further and open more opportunities. And we could only do that if we could take it right into the mainstream. And if you're going to do that, companies are not overnight going to transform themselves into 100% fair trade or into good companies. You had to provide a way by step by step by step they could begin to change the way their business operates, to change their model, and to see actually that the sky didn't fall in if they started selling, paying the farmers and workers a fair a price, or if they started engaging with fair trade, actually it would work quite well. And so our strategy was always that it was a product mark. If you buy something with the fair trade mark on, then you know that that one product has been traded according to fair trade conditions, that we checked it comes from organized farmers who've been paid a fair price. It's not saying anything wider about the company as a whole. If you go into Tesco's, for example, you can buy Tesco's own label, uh, Brazil nuts from Bolivia. Uh, it doesn't, nobody, I don't think anybody among the public therefore thinks Tesco is a fair trade organization. I think people are very well aware what they think about Tesco's, but they're pleased to see that within Tesco's range, they have some products that are fair trade. And what our hope is, though, is that gradually, by letting companies engage step by step, we can push them and push them and push them to do more. 
So to give you one example, actually a very recent example, Starbucks, when they first engaged with fair trade, only offered uh, a cafetiere as fair trade, which is very tiny volumes. But as they saw how did that work, how did they work, and they thought, yes, this is successful, in December they announced that they're going to switch all their coffee in the UK to fair trade by the end of this year. And it's an example where if you let companies start small and then we can push them and push them behind the scenes and indeed all of you can push them by asking for fair trade, in the end they can begin to engage more. That doesn't mean it doesn't leave us with lots of challenges and it's a constant debate about how should we put more conditions on companies, how should we push them to do more. But it's a balance between making, setting the bar too high so they don't jump and getting it right so it's a real stretch for them. Hi, is it possible for small companies to get the fair trade mark? I mean, how much do they have to go through? How much does it cost? Um, and is it possible? Manoj Rastu, Tata Fellow at Destin. Three levels. One, you know, it's a huge credibility issue when I'm hearing and, and, and saying that, you know, there's a fair, fair trade movement going on. I mean, I, I, I have. I get a trust that, uh, well, the products which are coming from this fair trade label are basically practiced by fair trade, and therefore, as a consumer, I will be tempted to buy. But how do you know that those partners who are associated with you are in turn also indulging in the fair practices to create this credibility? Uh, I would say to you, I, I looked at your annual report of 2007 and the methods that has been mentioned there, A, 80% of it comes through a self-declaration by the partners, 889 farmers which are associated with the, uh, uh, this organization. There are monitoring schedules that are being developed which are still being piloted. You are trying to put a monitoring to find out that the principles, so the 10 principles that, that should be followed, are they practicing or not? But that, that issue of knowledge as to whether they're doing it or not is very critical to establish this credibility. A. B. The second level is, uh, uh, okay, the second level is about, uh, you know, the, the, for example, Adam, you know, if, if we are selling it, uh, uh, you know, and, and then when, when we say that we pass on this price and we leave this much of, uh, well, the cost of the operation, the transaction costs, etc. But the dilemma is how much should we leave for us as a profit which should be considered to be genuine profit and how much should we pass? Can we pass more if we have not passed enough? Is it our subjective decision? These are the issues that I think is critical. Um, we started tonight um, by uh, quoting sort of Obama's inaugural speech where he was talking about um, responsible consumption. Uh, we hear a lot perhaps that the developed world should be consuming less. Uh, but Teddy, uh, your point seemed to be that uh, by boycotting uh, an ethical brand, uh, by sort of reducing consumption that way, um, it actually harms people in the developing world. Um, so perhaps in fact the best way, best way to help the developing world is to consume as much, but I don't know, consume better or somehow. I mean, whether you could talk about that. Um, my question is what, uh, what scope do you see for trade unions and traditional collective bargaining arrangements within and outside of the uh, fair trade movement? Okay, I, um, 
Harriet's volunteered me to answer the first couple, which is fine. Um, the first question was, how easy is it for small companies to get the fair trade mark? Um, I think it's probably a reasonable uh, statement that you guys don't know what it takes to get the fair trade mark. So I'll maybe just spend a couple of minutes explaining what we have to do as a business for that. Okay. Um, it's possible as a small UK business to buy fair trade commodities from a register of fair trade suppliers. So it can be as simple as that. Uh, if I'm um, Harrogate Coffee and I sell coffee around coffee shops in Harrogate, all I've actually got to do is get, get onto the to flow the Fair Trade Foundation, say, where can I buy some coffee from? They'll point me at somebody, and I just have to pay the agreed price and the agreed premium, and I've got a, a flow-marked product on my books, and I can start to sell it. Um, I don't think Sainsbury's have to jump through necessarily massive hoops, for instance, to put my products on their shelves. So in a sense, if you're dealing with a product that already has a significant amount of in, uh, input from some other set of businesses, you're free to enter at zero cost. Okay? And I think that's quite an important feature. So, but, but that's where, if you like, somebody else has made the effort to, to go through the certification process. As a small producer or company in the third world wanting to get the fair trade market, it's actually quite a lot of work. Um, and I think that's a very real criticism that, thankfully, my dad forgot to mention. <laughs> because ultimately, um, as a small business, you can be really ethical and try really, really hard, um, but there just aren't the resources available for flow to be hand-holding every single tiny business up and down the length and breadth of the third world. It just can't happen. That said, we live in a modern world. There are... Digital, there are digital resources and contact points, and it's quite easy to find out the basics. Um, if I were a Ugandan farmer who wanted to produce and sell fair trade coffee, I could download the fair trade coffee standard from the Flow website at no cost. Uh, I could read it, and then I could go, bloody hell, what the hell does all that mean? And then I could actually send an email to um, a woman who's based in Rwanda, who's the regional flow representative, and unbelievably, she would come and visit me eventually. It takes about three months to get her, to get some space in her diary, fair enough. She would come and she would talk me through it. And at that point, I would have the information that I needed to go forwards. I've then actually got to put in place all the requirements that are built into the flow criteria, which are reasonably thorough. And I've got to put in place recording mechanisms so that I can actually prove that I am doing what Flo says I should be doing when Flo come and look. Okay? So there's then a round of audits when the Flo auditor will visit my factory facility and so on. And if they're convinced that I'm doing the right things, I will then get a Flo license which will allow me to put my, myself onto the Flo register. Now, interestingly, all the flow standards come with, what are they called, Harry? Progress steps or something like that. They, I think they're called progress steps. So when you enter, you have to be doing pretty well. And then you have to show progress from that point, and there are um, higher levels of standard that you're supposed to be able to reach over a course of three or four or five years. So they kind of let you in through the door, and then they gradually 
mm, push you to do better and better, which I think, again, is the right way to do it. Um, once you've got that flow license, that doesn't mean you've, got, you've sold your product. You've still got to find a customer. Um, but that's broadly, I'd say, the way it works. Um, and I hope that partly answers um, the man here's first question about verification. Flow have an auditing um, organization, and they physically visit. Absolutely, I agree with you. You can't guarantee that every single business in every single country that has the flow mark is always doing exactly what they're supposed to be doing. The, the, the auditors only visit from time to time. They can only visit a sample of the farmers, etc., etc. Um, but I think as, a, as verification systems go, it's pretty damn good, actually. Uh, certainly, I wouldn't be able to wriggle out of most of the basic requirements that Flow laid down for any of my businesses, even if I wanted to. Um, and at that point, I'm going to pass on. Yes, what we always say is uh, you can trust the fair trademark because we trust no one. <laughs> so much as we love Adam, we would, Adam still has to submit uh, his records so we can make sure that he really has bought from fair trade registered groups and he really has paid them a fair trade price. And likewise, the fair trade groups have to show that they really are organised and that they've decided democratically how they want to, for example, invest the premium or that they're not using the worst chemicals for the range of standards that we have. So it is a very rigorous process uh, in which that, and that's why you can trust the fair trademark that we really have checked behind the scenes what the companies and indeed also the producers are doing. And I think that's absolutely part of the strength of the system. And it's all, again, it's about getting a balance between being too much of a rigorous policeman that it becomes very difficult, and on the other hand, critical is maintaining the trust of the public and actually the trust of the farmers and workers and making sure that all the members of an organisation are getting the benefits. One of the areas that, on which we also uh, have to uh, monitor with actually even greater rigour is when we work on, on plantations. And to go to your question about do we work also with workers and with trade unions, we have within the fair trade system a preference for smallholders, and in many commodities we only at present work with smallholders, and that would be in coffee or nuts, sugar, cocoa. But in some products like tea or wine or bananas, other fresh fruit, it would be almost impossible to work if you didn't also work with plantations. And indeed, some of the poorest people are the landless labourers who end up working on the plantations as well as the smallholders. And within our systems, therefore, they have all that you would expect about basic international labour organisation criteria, about respect for workers. But at the heart of that, just as we talk about the organisation of smallholders, so we talk about the organisation of workers. And it's very clear that trade unions are the most effective means for which workers to organise and in most cases are the only legitimate way. Um, I would say that is probably though our biggest challenge is how best to work with workers in situations where the unions are not strong or are weak or are not well present or are repressed and how to get that balance right um, is one of the biggest challenges we face and we're always seeking to strengthen our alliance with the trade unions and to work with them to help solve those problems to make sure that the workers really are gaining the empowerment that they need, even though you're having to jump over an owner in the case of a plantation in a way you don't have to when you're working with smallholders. Uh, and I'm also pleased to say the unions here have been very supportive of fair trade in this country as well. And actually, interesting, that goes to a point that Teddy raised, that I must just... Uh, that most companies, when they switch to fair trade, as in the Sainsbury's banana case, in most cases it's their existing suppliers who come with them. 
So, for example, Sainsbury's had always been buying for, for years and years from the Windward Islands. They went on buying from the Windward Islands, but paying them a fair trade price. However, when they made that commitment to switch, actually many of their bananas came from plantations in Costa Rica, which historically have a very bad record of repressing trade unions. And we actually thought that the leverage this gave us would actually push the plantations to recognize trade unions for the first time. And they actually chose not to. They chose not to recognize the trade unions, and therefore they walked away from supplying their bananas to Sainsbury's. That was a choice they made. We didn't think they would. We thought that they would then move to find, an, finally, an accommodation with the trade unions, and they didn't. And in that case, it is the right thing to do. If, if companies aren't ready to meet minimum standards, um, which are internationally recognized, then I think it's right, actually, to sometimes walk away from your supplier. But I would agree with you, that always has to be the last resort. And obviously, we would always seek to work with whether smallholders or plantations, to enable them to meet the standards. And I think that's what's interesting about fair trade. It's not simply saying um, these conditions are met. It's providing the information and the resources and the organizational support to enable farmers to meet those standards. So it's very easy to say no child labor in our supply chain. Oh, and by the way, could you sort that out? And we're going to pay you 30% less than last year. What fair trade tries to do is to channel additional resources back to farmers that will enable them themselves to work with the farmers to say how can we employ adults and pay them enough so we don't have to employ children and to find the proper solutions by levering back the resources, the financial resources, but also critically the expertise and it's the way that someone like Adam will work with the farmers to overcome those problems is I think what differentiates fair trade from many other schemes that will simply say there are no nasties in here, it's risk free, you don't have to worry. Actually, what's much more interesting is about making positive change and getting on the front foot and saying, how do we enable people uh, to tackle these problems? Thank you. Um, I, I think that we, we've reached 8 o'clock, and I think it's right any, in any case that Harriet uh, has the last word. I know there's a number of people out there that would like to ask uh, more questions, but uh, our guests have got commitments also themselves later tonight. So I'd like to just to end by, by thanking Teddy, of course, for taking part. Uh, for Adam particularly for coming and sharing his thoughts on being a whole food entrepreneur and remember tropical whole foods <laughs> and uh, especially I think to, to Harriet and you can read more about Harriet's work particularly through her book Fighting the Banana Wars so thanks to our guests very much.